All right, well, good morning. All right, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Let me go ahead and pray, and we can get started on the third chapter of the 1689. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you grateful for your blessing, uh, grateful for just the goodness of all that you do. We thank you for uh, the sufficiency of Christ, and we thank you for, um, we just thank you that you are, are sovereign and we are not. We thank you that uh, it's in your wisdom that the world is run. It's in your wisdom that your decree goes forward. We pray that you would bless us in trusting um, in what you have decreed, trusting in your goodness, trusting in your plan. I pray you'd bless us in walking through this difficult portion of the confession. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. We're walking through the third chapter of the 1689. It was brought to my attention that we spent so much time in the second chapter, and it turns out we did. It was close to 17 lessons. And I want to say this starting out, that is not the pace that we're going to have going through the entirety of the confession. There is no need to spend that much time in uh, many of the areas of the confession. When you're dealing with theology proper, which is the doctrine of God, our understanding of the Trinity, our understanding of the attributes of God, um, you're going to spend more time walking through those. I mean, there are words, just a single word in the second chapter can be an entire sermon, or it could be multiple sermons. There is much content there. There's much more that we could have gleaned out of the words in the second chapter. Again, we're not going to spend that long on the rest of the confession, uh, because we won't need to go into that much detail. Now, t- this morning, we're going we're we're to walk through the first paragraph of the third chapter, and this is of God's decree. Let's go ahead and read that. Paragraph 1 says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet not so as thereby is God neither the author of sin nor hath fellowship with any therein nor is violence offered to the will of the creature nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. That is an incredible paragraph. This is an incredible first part of the sentence, which says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. Some of that we're not going to unpack now because we're going to unpack certain aspects of this as we go through the chapter. But you need to gather from that that God has ordained whatever comes to pass. Let's look at the Baptist Catechism. It says, what are the decrees of God? Or we can understand it as we're studying it now as what is the decree of God 
And it says the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. You know, and, and questions may be asked, what, why spend so much time focusing on aspects of theology? Why spend so much time walking through the second chapter like we do? Why spend time asking these kinds of questions? We're considering these ideas of whether or not God has ordained whatever comes to pass. There's a lot of reasons we can answer that question. And the first is that this is what God has declared in his scriptures. He has declared this about himself. He has declared these truths about the world and has very practical applications in the area of evangelism. It has practical applications in the midst of trial and difficulty. It has practical applications in the time of when things are abounding and things are, are going well. Another question from the Catechism says, how doth God execute his decree? God executeth his decree in the works of creation and providence. We'll unpack that a little more as we go forward. But God has decreed whatsoever shall come to pass. And God is bringing about what he has decreed through creation. Now that is bringing everything into existence as it was brought into existence from absolutely nothing and also through providence. So the decree is what God has determined will come to pass, and providence is the Lord bringing that about. And that leads to this big question. Why is there evil? Um, one, of the, one of the arguments that is often given against the existence of God, just whether or not God even exists or not, is someone will say, if evil exists in the world, then either God is not able to end it, and therefore he is not powerful and should not be worshipped, or he's able to end it and he chooses not to, and therefore he is evil and he should not be worshipped. Well, such a statement has its internal issues logically. And the first is that you are setting up a standard whereby to judge the standard of righteousness in removing any basis for having a standard of righteousness. So basically I'm saying this. When you say there is no God, you no longer have a standard whereby you can say this is right and this is wrong. It merely becomes a matter of your opinion. It becomes your preference. It becomes your desire. And there's many other problems with this as well. Um, that we'll, we'll walk through this, but you know, the, the reality is, is that someone may, may ask such a question, and they may say, well, why, why doesn't God just get rid of all of the evil in the world? You know, that person doesn't ever say, why doesn't God get rid of the evil in the world and let him start with me? What does a man do? No, the man says, why doesn't God get rid of the evil in the world? And then he's pointing out at other people that commit particular sins that he despises. If God were to get rid of all of the evil in the world none of us would be here. There would be no redemption. There would be no grace. There would be no hope. This is also difficult for us in the time of trial, in the time of tragedy, in the time of great pain, which all people walk through at some time in their lives. 
And I find this to be something that's very helpful, and that's where I want to land this at the very end. So we're going to build up to the landing. But I want you to understand that it's okay in the midst of trial for someone to say, why, why is this happening? You know, for you just to internally despise what's happening, to, to be walking through pain. These are questions that King David asked. He asked, why is this particular tragedy happening? Um, like, you could be like Job, and you could be asking, why is this happening? But did, Job never got a specific answer to that question. Um, how we answer, how we respond and understand these things tells us much about what we believe about God. And so if we're looking at a difficulty, if we're looking at an evil, and we're judging God by that standard, you're using a worldly standard in that situation. Um, and you're emphasizing certain sins over other sins. But such a man that's judging God, if you're judging God in that circumstance, you're not even recognizing the mercy God's given you to make such a false judgment upon him. God has allowed you to commit evil in your life up to this point that you're even using the blessings he's given to you for the purpose of sinning against him. You're using the blessings he's given to you even to make a judgment about God. If God were to remove all evil from the world, and he would have done it immediately, that would have required the removal of Adam and Eve at the moment in which they sinned. But that's not what the Lord did. The Lord made a promise. The Lord said, I will crush the head of the serpent through the child of the woman. So when we see evil in the world, we must understand that as the first cause, as we understand it, as what God has determined, that the Lord has determined that this evil will be in the world, and the Lord has a purpose for its existence at this time. The Lord has a purpose for this. You may not know what the purpose is. He may not reveal it to you. But as we walk through certain aspects of certain passages in Scripture, certain narratives, they really help to give us a picture that help us to see times in which God's purpose played out in the midst of very evil and terrible actions of others, and God accomplished his good purpose there, and that can help to inform us during our times not to give us the specific reason why we may be going through a particular tragedy or someone else may be going through a particular tragedy at this time, but it does inform us and give us an understanding of times in which the Lord has used even evil actions of men to accomplish his good purpose. So let's walk through just a, a, a few of these, these times and understand even the idea of sin itself. So God has decreed sin. God has decreed whatsoever should come to pass. Sin is something that does exist. But before you go and say God is causing someone to sin, or the reason someone sins is because God made them sin, the confession says this. It says, Yet so, as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. So a person who is sinning is not sinning, because they are a robot, and God made them to be a robot, and God is forcing them to do a particular sin. 
people are sinning because that's what they desire to do from the heart within them. They may be born dead to sin, but they're still willfully sinning in this respect. James deals with this in James 1, beginning in verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth, brings forth death. So the, the sin that someone is committing is coming forward from within them. They are sinning because that's what they desire to do. They're being enticed and lured by their own desires. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If God were evil, we would have no hope at all. There would be no righteousness that we could gain from God. In Christianity, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. If God is evil, you would have absolutely no hope whatsoever. We are born as sinful creatures, and as sinful creatures, we are acting according to the desires of our heart when we sin. But what you need to understand here is in the decree, God is using even these willful choices of sinful men to accomplish his purpose. He's not reacting to them. He's not responding to them. He is using those actions to accomplish his, his purpose. And that's where we get into this terminology here. And this is, a, this is a little higher and philosophical, but it's important to understand this distinction. It says this in the next portion. It says, yet is, the, yet is uh, rather, nor yet, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness and accomplishing his decree. So we're getting into this idea of a second cause. So the first cause is God has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass. He has decreed this. And through, and through creation and providence, he is bringing that forward. And the means through which it's happening is the second causes. So the first cause is God's decree, all right? But the second cause is, is men actually doing certain things, men acting in certain ways, men doing particular things at particular times in certain ways. So he's decreed whatever would come to pass. That's the first, that's the first cause. The second cause is people acting willfully, intentionally, whether it be righteously or unrighteously. And so I want to use this, because I know for some of you this is really difficult. You're like, this is terrible. I could never worship a God like this. If you could never worship a God like this, you are in trouble, because this is the true God, and this is the God that is declared in the Scriptures. He is a sovereign God, and he is a holy God, and he is a righteous God. But I want to give you two examples in Scripture that I believe are very, very helpful in helping us to really see this in a narrative. Because these are two parts of Scripture that are very much tied to redemption. And if the Lord hadn't brought about his decree through sinful actions of people in these circumstances, we would have no hope in Christ. That's how serious that this is. God has acted using even the sinful actions of men at certain times in history to bring about our redemption 
in Christ Jesus. So the first story I want us to consider is that of, of Joseph. You remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? He's one of Jacob's son. He was Jacob's favorite son. And his brothers became very jealous of him. Right? His father was showing favoritism to him, and he was perhaps being a little ostentatious at times in how he, in how he behaved, and they, became, uh, they began to despise him. They began to hate him. They wanted to do away with him. They wanted to kill him is what their first choice was. But they didn't kill him, right? They sold him into slavery. This is something the brothers chose to do. God, God used the sinful actions of Joseph's brothers to bring about his good purpose. And the Lord had a purpose in sending Joseph to Egypt. The Lord sent Joseph to Egypt, and Joseph suffered in many, many ways. First, he was sold into slavery. He was sinned against by his own brothers, members of his own household. Secondly, he became a slave, which is terrible. And then thirdly, he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and he was thrown into prison. These are very terrible things that happened to Joseph in his life. And these are things that happened to Joseph because of the sinful actions of other people. And the Lord used each of these sinful actions to accomplish his good purpose. And he ended up saving not only Joseph, but Joseph's brothers, and most especially Joseph's brother, Judah. Because Judah is the one from whom the, 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 Judah is the one that the scepter is never going to um, leave. There's always going to be a king that comes out of Judah. And all of you know, all of you know, that's going to point to Christ. Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But Christ can't come from the lion of the tribe of Judah if Judah starves to death. No. Judah was brought to Egypt because of sinful actions that Judah had participated in, but God showed grace to him and the line that would come so that Christ could be born. Now, there's more that happened here because Joseph was then put into prison and it became known that he could interpret dreams. And so he interpreted the dreams of other men and this became something that even Pharaoh went to Joseph for. And Pharaoh went to Joseph and asked him to interpret one of his dreams, and he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And he told Pharaoh what he needed to do in order to survive. He told Pharaoh that they needed to store grain, and they stored grain for the upcoming famine. And remember, this is a, a wicked, wicked people. This is an idolatrous nation, and the Lord is enriching this nation through the dream of Joseph, through the dream of Pharaoh that Joseph interprets. And they become wealthy because people no longer have food. And your money's not worth very much when you don't have any food. And so people began to sell, buy, they began to give Pharaoh their money so they could buy food. Then they gave Pharaoh their land, they gave Pharaoh their livestock. And by the end of this, Pharaoh owned all of Egypt with the exception of the land that the priest ruled over and he had their money and he had their livestock and Joseph was the second most powerful person in all of Egypt and so when this famine occurs and Joseph and his brothers go over there to go and to buy the grain 
they end up being saved by the one that they sold into slavery. The story's not over there because it becomes known that these are Joseph's brothers. And so Jacob and the other children are brought back to Egypt and they are placed in an area called Goshen. And they live in that area and they begin to thrive. They begin to grow, they begin to multiply greatly in the midst of this people. And the Lord gives them uh, much success in this and they grow so much that now Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the entire world, the man who owns the rules over the greatest army in the entire world, becomes fearful and concerned over them, begins to rule harshly over them, begins to put them into slavery, seeks to keep them down. They continue to grow even during this time. Then he seeks to go and to take the lives of their children, but yet there's one that's saved. There's one that's saved, and that man is Joseph, uh, Moses, Moses is saved, ends up being raised in the house of Pharaoh, ends up realizing that he is a Jew, leaves Pharaoh's household, is given 40 years to be a shepherd, because he's going to have to be a shepherd for another 40 years with God's people in the wilderness. And Moses begins to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the people go. And the Lord uses this for the purpose of displaying his glory and his power in saving his people and protecting this line that would come forward and protecting the line that the um, promised seed would come from. And God is sovereign even during this time that he never made Pharaoh's sin, but he did harden his heart. He did harden his heart, and this is what that means. It means that what a normal person would have done, anyone with any sense, would have not gone forward because they've been through all of the plagues. All right? They're going through all this. Someone with any sense is, okay, I'm losing everything. I'm the most powerful person in the world. This is the most powerful nation in the world. I'm losing everything I have over these people. I should just let them go. That would have been the reasonable thing to do, but the Lord hardened his heart that Pharaoh would follow through with what is in his heart. God didn't make him do that. God just held back any inhibitions that might have been there from a worldly standpoint that Pharaoh would go headlong into his sin. Romans 9, beginning in verse 15, says, For he says to Pharaoh, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And all of this is happening because of the actions of sinful men, but God is sovereign. God is sovereign in the midst of all of this, and he is protecting the line from which the Messiah is going to come forward. As I already mentioned, Genesis 49 says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. This is the one that was going to come forward. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord is going to come at the right time, 
and the Lord is going to accomplish. So this is our, our second story. That's our first narrative that I wanted to share with you is the story of, of Joseph to help you to understand God's decree working itself out to accomplish God's purpose and how God uses even sinful actions of men as second causes to bring about his purpose to accomplish his purpose in the world and here we see his purpose in redemption because that story of Joseph brings us to the story of Christ because Judah is protected and Christ is coming out of the line of Judah. Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And Christ is going to come forward and he's going to and he is going to be sinned against by people and the Lord is going to use their sinful actions to bring about what he has determined to happen, what he has predestined to happen, but he is in no way causing them to act in that way. Um, think of this, even Jesus, as he stands before Pilate, consider, consider these words. John 19, beginning in verse 9, says, Where are you from? This is Pilate asking Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then Jesus answers him. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And so Jesus is saying to him here that he only has the authority that has been given to him. He is acting in his own volition at this point. But there's a purpose behind what what is happening. And so the Lord uses the sinful actions of men to ordain all that happens, to ordain even the redemption that we have received in Christ Jesus. We see this also in Peter's prayer. If we look at Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 27, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They were acting according to the Lord's plan. The Lord wasn't shocked. The Lord wasn't trying to figure out, oh no, what am I going to do now? No, he was sovereignly ruling and he's bringing about his purpose in redemption using the actions of sinful men. Those are the second causes. The actions of Pilate, the actions of Herod, the actions of the Jewish leaders. These actions of Joseph's brother selling him into slavery, the actions of um, Potiphar's wife, the way she lied against him, the way she sought to commit adultery with him, and he stood righteously in that time. Of all people that could have said, woe is me. No, the Lord had been working in the life of Joseph even though he was in Egypt. The Lord had been working within him. And he suffered for righteousness at that time. That's what happened. The Lord is using these second causes. And these men are acting freely. They're acting freely as people who are sinners acting according to their sinful desires. They're not being forced by God to do what they're doing. I find these to be very helpful. I find these two 
stories in Scripture to be very, very helpful. You can be like David and you can ask the question, why do the unrighteous prosper while the righteous are suffering? You can be like Job and you can ask, why is this particular tragedy happening in your life? Or why is this tragedy happening in the life of someone that I love? It is appropriate to ask that. We're not Christians that are Stoics and have no feelings. Here's what you're not able to do. You don't have a right to demand that God give you the specific reasons or give you an answer at this time. You have no right to judge God because you're going through a particular tragedy. Remember Job, as we walked through that in small group, he asked the Lord questions and his brothers tried to philosophize using ungodly reasoning many times, ungodly understanding, and they would try to figure out, why is this happening? Job, you must have done something. Someone else must have done something. There must be a a reason why this is happening. And the Lord corrects all of Job's friends except one. And then the Lord begins to ask Job many other questions for which he has no answer. And you get to the end of the book, his family is restored, his wealth is restored, his health is restored. Job never got an answer. No explanation was ever given to him. He wasn't owed an answer. And let's understand this as well. You may not even have the ability to fully understand God's perfect plan. God is infinite and you are, are finite, but th- this is where I think the rubber hits the road. The story of Joseph and the way it leads to the story of Christ and his ministry and work, his life and his death and his resurrection, I find to be most beneficial in viewing any tragedy in my life and the life of others when we're asking the question, why is this happening? Because when you look at Christ, most specifically, and you see Christ, and he is, is sinless. Christ never sinned. Christ never violated the law in any respect. He's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You should love God, love your neighbor as yourself, love other people. That's all he ever did. He was always loving to anyone he was ever around. From his heart, from his desires, within his mind, with his words, and within his actions. But Christ died for the ungodly. The wrath of God fell upon him. God used the sinful actions of these men to bring about his redemptive purpose. There's no question about it. The death of Christ upon the cross is the most unjust act that has ever occurred in the world. Absolutely the most unjust act. And God has used that act of injustice to bring about the greatest act of redemption the world has seen. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. That doesn't take away the pain of a tragedy. It's still there. It doesn't give you all the answers specifically regarding a particular situation at this time. But it does give you hope. It does let you see that the Lord can use even that most unjust act for the purpose of granting you salvation, granting you redemption. Who 
am I? Who are you? Who are we at any point to ever question what God has decreed? Who are we to pass judgment upon the Lord? And I want to close with a, a couple passages and just help you to see, because we'll walk into this as we continue in this, in this chapter, but there's great ramifications in our salvation if God's not sovereign. If God's plan is, can change, if God doesn't know what he's going to do, if God's just trying to, to figure this all out, what surety do we have? What, what certainty do we have if someone can just act at some point? God's not reacting either. Don't get into this Molinistic idea where God is just looking through time and just coming up with a perfect plan like he's a supercomputer to figure out how to crunch all the numbers and do things exactly right. Okay, that, that's very much diminishing God's sovereignty and his decree and it's conveying something that scriptures do not say about him. Let's look at some passages on what the scriptures say about him. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 26. This is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Another passage that is very helpful in us understanding God's decree and how it comes forward, especially in our lives during times of, of pain, tragedy, Disappointment is Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Just as the Lord had a purpose for the tragedy in the life of Joseph. And you remember at the end of that story, Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Talking about the same action. Now God's motivation was different than Joseph's brother's motivation. They didn't have the same motivation, but it was the same action that was there that brought about this act of redemption that ended up saving the lives of the family. God is sovereign over the world. Ephesians 1 and verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is the Lord and what he's bringing about. The Lord is sovereign over what he is bringing about. He is sovereign over the small things. He is sovereign over the great things. We must be honest. We don't have the capacity to fully understand what God has decreed or his purpose in this. But God has given us sufficient instruction to give us rest during these times. has given us sufficient instruction to give us hope even during these times, to remember that our very salvation, the redemption we have in Christ Jesus, is grounded in men and their sinful activities, but God, but God sovereignly working to accomplish his good purpose through them. It's upon this that we have the, the entirety of our hope. So we'll probably spend a little more time at on the end of paragraph one, and then we will go ahead and work on paragraph two of chapter three.
when we meet the next time and walk through the 1689. Let me go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you for your sovereign hand. We thank you for your sovereign goodness. We thank you for the blessing that we have in your word. We thank you for the redemption that you have brought about in Christ Jesus. We thank you are sovereign even over the sinful men who sought to end your plan. Sovereign even over Satan who wars against Christ and his church and has been defeated and is being defeated. We pray that you would bless us in trusting in these truths. Bless us and growing in this understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we will start our worship service at 1050.